Would you please turn to uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 5, and we're reading from verse 27. You'll see the page there before you. And we're concluding this series that we've been pursuing uh, these past uh, few months, and we're coming now to the end of this uh, chapter in Luke chapter 5, verse 27. The calling of Levi, whom the Lord renamed Matthew. So we've had the the healing of the paralyzed man, and as Jesus is leaving, he comes across Levi. We take up the reading of verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me. Jesus said to him, Levi got up, left everything and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were sitting with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, Can you make the guest of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them in those days. They will fast. He told them this parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it on an old one. If he does, it will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, The new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wants the new. For he says, the old is better. And I'm not sure if that is... Jesus speaking as a connoisseur of wine, but he's teasing here and he wants to bring certain things out. And we shall look at that in a moment. Well, the heading is Jesus, friend of sinners. And this looks terribly easy, but I think we need to fill in a couple of Gaps. Wouldn't it be great if we were able to go up to people 
and challenge them and say, right, from now on, leave your work, go and follow Jesus. Some of us would perhaps like to do that. Obviously, there's a lot of background here which we need to consider. But let me just say one thing, reflecting, trying to put this into context then, and reflecting on this remarkable event um, of the healing of this paralyzed man. Something that I'd not noticed before. And you can't help but wonder if this isn't a, a bit of a lead-in. It's unfortunate you get chapters and verses, but that's helpful in terms of reading the Gospels. You'll remember that these four friends had this uh, paralyzed friend of theirs. They go to Jesus, they lower down uh, into, into the house. Here, to me, is the most challenging thing, and it is relevant to the sermon, which I challenge you with. If chapter 5, all our references tonight are only in Luke's Gospel, so keep that open and easy to uh, consider. In verse 20, I wonder if... I, think about it like this. You know the scene and you know what happened. But look at this. When Jesus saw their faith, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the friend, your sins are forgiven. We are thinking about Jesus as a friend of sinners. And we are rightly say we need to hear. Faith comes by hearing. But are we saying only exclusively by hearing? I don't think so. If people could see our faith, that it would be the bridge of bringing forgiveness to more people, is a very powerful thing. Because you can't work in a vacuum. There are certain events that take place here. And we're going to try to tease this out very quickly. So, a toll booth, uh, or um, the payage, if you've been in France, or if you want to cross the bridge to Wales, uh, it's a toll bridge. Now I think it costs you six pounds to go into Wales, and it's not worth it, trust me. It's tax by stealth. It's re we pay tax for the roads, we pay tax for our cars, tax for our petrol, and then they have the audacity to charge you for going over a, a small stretch of water. And you can imagine whether we think these things are right or wrong, where Jesus sees Levi, who, and Neil made reference this morning, and uh, tax collectors like bankers, Neil, are easy targets. And I, we don't know if he had his hand in the till. We, uh, we, we can't tell. But they do get, they get hard-pressed, don't they, tax collectors, to be avoided at all cost, I guess. Well, here is the toll booth. Perhaps just entrance into the city, having to pay, and so on and so forth. What strikes me immediately here in this context is that when Jesus called Levi, he achieved at the very least three things very quickly. The first, he brought salvation. Now, it may well be that, uh, that Levi, who became Matthew, had already committed himself to the Lord Jesus. Now, how would he do that? Well, um, you wonder if he wasn't the financial advisor for Peter and John and James and the fishermen. 
And maybe he was a man of immense integrity. And he had observed these fishermen and the change that had come to them. So, when Jesus says, follow me, they are ready. He's ready. Because they have been speaking to Levi. And in a way for us, when we live out our lives, when, if you like going back, when people see our faith, it can be a bridge over to have an encounter with Jesus. That's the first thing. The second is this, that um, Jesus adds a new disciple. Very different to fishermen. Fishermen are, by their very nature, hands-on people. Here's a pen pusher. Here's an IT expert. Here's somebody who um, is good with money, astute. And thirdly, when Jesus calls him, he creates an opportunity to explain the gospel to unbelievers. I think one of the problems often that we have as good and uh, sincere evangelical Christians as we are, there's a growing tendency to withdraw from the unbelieving world. This creates an opportunity to explain the gospel to first generation Christians or the unchurched or the unsaved, whatever term we, we use, we'll use unbelievers. Now, this makes me think, how does this work? It's all very well hearing sermons, but how are we going to do this? What's our point of contact? Well, just, uh, we've got two cross-references. We'll look at the first. Turn to um, Luke 19. You know this is the classic uh, remarkable conversion of Zacchaeus. By the way, a tax collector. Doubtless, and I think it's legitimate for me to say this, somebody who knew Levi. And in Luke 19, and verses 1 to 4, why is Zacchaeus so keen to meet Jesus? There's a connection. So Jesus entered Jericho, Luke 19, verse 1, and was passing through. A man there by the name of Zacchaeus, he was not just a tax collector, but a chief tax collector, and was wealthy. Most of them were. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead, climbed a sycamore tree, and we know the rest. I only ask you this question. Why was he so keen? What's the connection? I would like to think, and I think it's legitimate, that it may well be, and it's rather obvious, that when you come back to Luke chapter 5, verse 29, then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. Now, that would imply a couple of things. A great banquet is expensive. A big house would be the sort of lifestyle that he had. And he would have said to Jesus, you know, I've got lots of friends who would like to meet you. And maybe one of them was this hard-nosed businessman. And something had registered with him. And now as Jesus is passing and there are events going on in his life, and that's the connection. 
when coming back to these four friends who are nameless, when they lower down their paralytic friend, Jesus saw their faith. He brought salvation to that man. And when Jesus sees our faith, he brings blessing to others. I, I, that is, to me, a, a, a vital connection here. So we need to constantly, the, the application is rather obvious, look for opportunities to engage with the unbelieving world, not to withdraw from it. <coughs> next Sunday evening, this time next Sunday, Colin Wells will be preaching here. And he was saying to me recently, as he works for Christians in sport, one night every week, he insists, is with unchurched people. He's out training for football, meeting them and socializing. One night a week. One of the, again, this is a self-criticism, one of the problems of church life, it seems to draw us in. There's so much to do. And we become overly busy doing good things that we are engaging less and less. And he was saying, I have to fight hard to do that because there's this meeting and there's that event. I think the point is rather obvious. Look at Holiday Club this week. It has been a, a remarkable opportunity, not just the children, but to talk to the parents. But how many of us, when they pass through our building, are too busy talking to each other? What about our neighbours? What about our place of work? We often we can't invite them to church because they live far away. School. Perhaps school, and for our children, is, is one of the hardest places to live out your faith. And our community, here we are. To be a Christian today in the United Kingdom is a big challenge. Recently, I was reading an article in the press, in, in the national press, not a Christian uh, paper, and it said this, in a survey, it is easier to say that you are gay than you are a Christian. Oh, it's easy to preach here. But how do we, hand on heart, genuinely engage with the unbelieving world? With all of that and all of its cynicism. It's a big challenge, isn't it? And here is Jesus, who is a friend of sinners. So here's the challenge. Jesus enters Levi's world of tax collectors and sinners, as they're called. And may I say, seems quite comfortable among them. Some of us might see that as a bit of a criticism. But the point that Jesus gives Matthew confidence to invite them into his world and says to Jesus, I'll have a party, you come and meet them. And so, verse 29, Levi held a great Banquet for Jesus at his house and a large crowd of tax collectors were there and they were eating with them. I'm sure it was a good party. 
when we think of the days in which we are living, we've got to try and work harder at this. Jesus enters Matthew's world, but he gives Matthew the confidence to get people to enter his world. And often there's a polarization here. And a party, a big banquet, includes music, conversation, interaction, probably dancing, eating, drinking, sharing, all of that. Of course, all of these have a potential for excess. When, when I was young, all those things were considered to be unacceptable for Christians, and we withdrew, and it was well meant, well meant. But in the process of withdrawing, the church itself was in decline. I know there's the other danger, that we are so like the world that we've, we've lost the distinctiveness. And surely that's why Jesus, in his manifesto, gives us the, the Beatitudes, these beautiful attitudes, which are more important than our actions. Well, there it is. Great. But there's always somebody who's going to put their head over the parapet and say, you know, you, you really shouldn't do that. So verse 30 is the reaction. And I know they are fair game, like tax collectors in a different context here. They are scribes and Pharisees. Don't you love them? They make people feel uncomfortable. And they make people feel unwelcome. They may not intend doing that. Some of the Pharisees may have been utterly sincere. Do we do that? And if we do, do we know it? I would like to ask a question. And, uh, in, and only for two minutes... Because I know we've had a very busy week and a lot of the leaders are, are resting at home tonight. But if you could go in just groups of four, I want to ask just one question and hopefully um, you'll be able to answer it and we'll have one or two suggestions, okay? And it's this. Jesus frequently mixed with sinners. We know that. And sinners is, a, okay, a generic term for lots of people who, uh, okay. Um, should we do the same? If not, why not? Okay, that's the question. Okay? Jesus frequently mixed with sinners. Let's call it the unchurched then, for that purpose. Should we do the same? If not, why not? Can you take three minutes maximum? You've got the question? Ask among yourselves. And, yeah. Right, can you, uh, can you wrap it up? Anybody got any suggestions? This group I was intrigued to hear. Rob, you're going to say something? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> get, get, get Liz to do it. Come on, that's oh. good. Uh, quick report. What would you say? Um, we said yes, that you would want to spend time with unchurched people. Um, we were just discussing the fact that possibly our generation is very polarised. There's not much link between church, secular and um, church. church. 
And that's the difficulty. You can spend a lot of time with unchurched friends, but how do you bridge that gap into church life? Okay. Do some of us have confidence to ask about people going to church? Did you come up with anything here? Okay, here we go. I said, you know, if you're a true Christian, which people in this church are, you should have no fear of going to mix with sinners. No. You should be able to get your point over, whether it's a red light district or any other district. Right. You should be able to make your point. Okay. And you shouldn't be frightened of it. Okay. Um, Philip Hewer, you're a street pastor. Have you been out recently or? Okay, uh, presumably you're meeting with sinners who are inebriated as well. <laughs> okay, quickly. Publican. Publican, oh yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's sort of being the church on the street, and that's often how we say, you know, people say, well, what, what are you doing then? You know, why, why are you out on the streets? I mean, yeah, we just say, well, you know, we want to be where people are in need and, right. and being a help. Being, okay. being the church on the street to help where people need it, and that can open up avenues for, right. for conversation. Can some of us try to face the fact that are we reluctant to invite people, at least if it's the point of God, to church? Let's do, take that. I know they can come to faith outside and so on, nevertheless, because there is an anti-church mentality. Any thoughts on that? Or... Right. I find if people get to know you first and, yeah. and find out a bit like in a work situation, if they get to know who you are and what you are and then they start asking you about your weekend and, and you say, I went to church, and they say, oh, you know, what's that like? That is an easier way Good. than sort of saying, I'm a Christian, come to church. Right. Because it's, oh, no, I don't want to do that. Yeah. You know, what's that involved? It's sort of... That's the thing that sort of puts a barrier up and people sort of switch off. Right. So it's, it's getting them to get to know you and who you are and then slowly introducing it. Right. Thank you, Emma. I'm sure there'd be a lot more that we could comment on, but you see what I'm trying to say. If, if we expect people to come to faith, then we're the people who need to make the connections where we are. And, and, and there may be a growing lack of confidence. Uh, to, to me, I, I, it is quite appalling to think that people are much more willing to talk about sexuality than to talk about Christianity. And, and it's not easy for our young people. And in what way do we as a church and as leaders give the next generation the confidence in this whole area? Okay. Uh, well, there you are. That was, hopefully, it was just a, uh, and now I will rush through the rest of this sermon as a quick outline. So, in order to help us then, um, we have two illustrations and one contrasting parable, as it is in this uh, reading. What's interesting as well is Jesus actually wants to help his critics not simply to give them as good as they give him. And he wants to open, prize open the door. And so there's these obvious and rather um, uncomplicated illustrations. The first is the doctor. Jesus, in verses 31 to 32, Jesus saw them as spiritually sick, as patients, if you like, 
who were in need. And they needed to be healed of an incurable disease. And if one can say, hand on heart, genuinely, that he had the monopoly on that. Because that was the whole point of the conflict that he came into. Only God can forgive sins. Quite so. Exactly that. That was the whole point of the healing of the paralyzed man. Now, it isn't simply that we want more people to come to church. It is we want people to have an encounter with Jesus that he is the living Lord. The incurable disease is sin. And as long as people refuse to face their true condition, they were going to remain sick. And if they do remain sick, they will never know true forgiveness. They will never know his reconciling love. And they will not know restoration. And the best illustration of this Turn to Luke 15. You know it's perhaps the most familiar story of all. But again, like these parables, it's got a sting in the tail. You know the prodigal son, he goes off and he lives a riotous life and he squanders his money and he comes home. Maybe his reluctance to come home was he knew he's got an elder brother. And it's not a happy home. And often homes are not happy. And this is much more than simply sibling, sibling rivalry. So, you know the story, Luke 15, and we look at verse 35, uh, uh, 25, I'm sorry. The, the prodigal son comes back and uh, this reference to celebrating. And the, the older brother, have you a sympathy for him? He hasn't left home, he hasn't squandered, he's hardworking, he's conscientious. He reflects the Protestant work ethic. He's thinking of the future. And as far as this waster, which is the meaning of prodigal, goes, he's better off out there. But what is Jesus doing by this? Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. Well, that's all he did do. Life is work. Work is life. When he came near the house, and this is the point that Jesus is saying when he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants. He didn't call his father. And he, what, what, what is going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father's killed the fattened calf because he had him back safe and sound. Look, the older brother becomes angry and refused to go in. And there is no account that he did go in. He needs a doctor. He's sick. Rembrandt captures this paint, this portrait beautifully, deeply moving. And, and many people through paintings have, 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 have seen something of themselves. The elder brother, spirit and attitude. Well, what Jesus is saying here, he needs healing. Needs healing. Secondly, complete contrast, a wedding. And I think Jesus is being quite ironic here. Uh, come back to Matthew 5 as we try to uh, apply this to ourselves now. Um, uh, so he tells them um, uh, in verse 34, can 
can you make the guest of the bridegroom fast while you are still with them? Now, Jesus is not against fasting, but here he is for feasting. He is not against tax. Render to Caesar what is Caesar. But for a people's life, the whole thrust of it is work and money and their security. It's a pretty poor place. What's the issue then? Actually, the issue is a hardened, rigid traditionalism has occurred. This is a very good, comprehensive definition uh, of uh, traditionalism, which I found. Listen to this. By traditionalism, we mean an attitude that resists change, adaptation, or alteration. It clutches tradition so tightly that the blood supply to our spiritual brain is cut off, distorting vision and blurring the distinction between custom and command. Traditionalism is suspicious and censorious of the new, the innovative, and the different. And the older brother will not have it. How extraordinary that Jesus should say, this is a wedding and you're fasting. You should be feasting. And here's the interesting thing. And this is the first time I think that Jesus gives a hint of his impending death. If you read it very carefully, you see he says about fasting, verse 34, but in verse 35 it says, But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days they will fast, but not now. And lastly, this teasing parable. It's a, a lot has been said about it and... Um, what do you make of it, 36 to 38, the last? He told them this parable, and it's got two dimensions to it. It's quite interesting. As these Pharisees remain stuck in the mud of tradition, Jesus is trying to pull them free, to draw them out. I have to confess that when I was quite young uh, and um, wearing jeans, drain pipe jeans as, drain, jeans as they were called, I used to struggle to put them on, then sit in the bath and let them shrink. I mean, it's just dreadful. When you, we might complain about young people today, but uh, even in my day. The point was that you wanted these things to be so tight, that's cool to be have these. You almost needed an operation to get jeans off. But the thing is that if you put them in water, they would, they would shrink. Now, what Jesus is a play here, shrunken garment, unshrunken garment. They don't mix. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. It's obvious it doesn't work. 
the old garments, the hand-downs of traditionalism will not do for a new generation. They will not do. They will not do. And I know it's obvious, isn't it? Just this, uh, if you take freshly made wine and pour them into old, worn, brittle wineskins, you're going to lose everything. There's no give. Now, of course, Jesus is really being very personal here. And sometimes talking indirectly is much more effective. Are some of the Pharisees, are some good evangelical people like brittle wineskins? The old wine is okay. It's fermented. But the new isn't. And, and Jesus is saying, I am doing something new. And you won't have it. You will not have it. Now, we've no idea how many of these Pharisees, some came to faith later on, but not all. Joseph of Arimathea did and provided the burial for Jesus. We have to be careful that our strength doesn't become a very real weakness. So, let's conclude. Two stretching challenges that come here. The first, we need to get to know unbelievers. Not in a patronizing way. We meet them on their turf, if you like. We make a genuine effort to relate. If we do have um, a meal that we would invite neighbors and friends who perhaps don't go to church. Colleagues at work. Just telling them about our weekend. Get to know people like that. This business of the comfort zone, it's been well used. Let's use a different term. Let's break out of the bubble. Bubble Christians are not necessarily Bible Christians. Jesus is a friend of sinners. So should we. Without orchestrating anything. And lastly, if we need to get to know unbelievers, we need to take a risk to talk about our faith. It's no risk at all, but it seems like it. So be open about prayer. If, let's suppose somebody's got a, a difficulty, they're facing an illness, or there's pending unemployment, or there's a, there's a breakup in the home, or there's a problem with teenagers, and all that sort of thing, and, and you were able to say, you know, I've really found prayer helpful for me. It's all you need to say. It's probably the last thing some people would think about. And what about forgiveness? Would you want to say to people, you know, I'm far from perfect, but, but I found the sweetness of forgiveness. To know that somebody loves me unconditionally is a very powerful thing. You talk about Jesus like that. So, don't be rigid. Don't be inflexible. Jesus is a friend of sinners. 
is your friend and mine. And he wants more people to come into his kingdom. And he can use you and I to do that.